0: If you are just tuning in, uh, we are in a sermon series that we have been calling Subversive Peace, Reading Romans Backwards. Romans is a book of the New Testament that uh, has a kind of a reputation for being heady, intellectual, a book for theologians. Um, In fact, a lot of people have been sort of trained to read Romans like it's a theology textbook. But in this series, we are intentionally approaching Romans as the letter that it is and in particular as a letter written to a group of house churches in the city of Rome in the middle of the first century who were deeply divided socio-economically, culturally, and ethnically. I'm convinced that Paul's desire for the diverse disciples of Rome to be united in Christ is the context for the entire letter, every passage, Romans isn't about abstract theoretical theology, it's about lived theology, a way of life. So rather than beginning in the the first few chapters, which a lot of people are conditioned to read as a general, systematic type of theology, we have begun in the back of the letter, and we are working our way forward. Um, This is where the local church context is most obviously seen in the letter, and so that's why we have started there. This week we have made our way to a very famous passage of Romans, a portion that has a checkered history. So today's message comes with a bit of a warning. Those who know me know that I am not usually one to shy away from controversy, Uh, and in fact I believe that a healthy community is the type of community in which no subject is off limits. In fact, I think that's the kind of community that Paul is trying to cultivate with this letter as sisters and brothers in Christ, who derive our primary identity from that participation in Christ, we should be able to talk about subjects on which we will likely disagree. That's okay. Um, You don't have to agree with me on my perspective on Romans 13. As I like to say, you're entitled to be wrong. That's okay. Um, But seriously, in some communities, Disagreeing with a pastor is, like, sinful. And that's not the case here. I'm not God. I have been wrong before in my life that one time. And I'll probably be wrong again at some point again in my life in the future. But uh, you don't have to agree with me. You, all I ask is that you open yourself up to think critically this morning. You might rethink some things about what you've previously believed. And It's okay to rethink some things right like we don't have to die with the same beliefs that we were handed in Sunday school when we were eight Amen Amen. (laughs) So as a part of today's warning, uh, I don't want you to be caught off guard I'm going to show a video clip uh, Which is a montage of three clips uh, That has some politicians and some spokespersons Who all happen to be of one particular political party that's not because I'm trying to bash this party, or because I'm a member of another party. Um, and it, it, kind of, it kind of troubles me that I have to say this, but I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I am literally registered as an independent, so I, I don't have skin in this game. But I will say this, my political allegiance is really, really clear. My allegiance is to Jesus, not a donkey or an elephant or whatever else comes along, my political allegiance is to Jesus, the kingdom of God, to the global, multi-ethnic, historic body of Christ, and to the most vulnerable members of society. That's where my political allegiance lies. So, but, I also have to say that that doesn't mean I get to opt out of politics. That's a luxury and a privilege that I don't allow myself. Instead, I believe that following Jesus means that we have to enter the fray of politics, because we are called to love our neighbors, and because justice is what love looks like in public. So allow me to set up this montage of clips before I show it to you. Here's what's going on. Back in the spring of 2018, the United States government began to implement an immigration policy called Zero Tolerance at the southern border with Mexico. One of the highly controversial aspects of this policy was separating children from their parents as a deterrent for for people seeking asylum in the United States. And this family separation policy also didn't include any measures to reunite children with their parents. So literally thousands of children basically got lost in the shuffle. So as you might expect, some people were upset. And a lot of those people were people of faith. Even evangelical leaders spoke out and publicly denounced this policy. And this resulted in some politicians attempting to justify this policy by using the Bible. And that's what you're going to see in at least two of these three clips.
1: So let's show the video. I thought I'd take a little bit of digression here to uh, discuss some concerns raised by our church friends about separation of families. Many of the criticisms raised in recent days are not fair, not logical, and some are contrary to plain law. First, illegal entry into the United States is a crime. It should be, it must be, if you're going to have a legal system and have any limits whatsoever. Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. If you violate the law, you subject yourself to prosecution. And I would cite... Due to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves. Consistent, fair application of law is in itself a good and moral thing and that protects the weak. It protects the law. say
2: in the Bible that it's moral. Uh, to take children away from their mothers?
3: Uh, I'm not aware of the Attorney General's comments or uh, what he would be referencing. Is a moral uh, I here? can say that uh, it is very biblical to enforce the law. That is actually repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. However, this uh, hold on, Jim, if you'll let me finish. Uh, Again, I'm not going to comment on the attorney specific comments that I haven't seen.
1: It's not what I said,
3: and I I know it's hard for you to understand. even short sentences, I guess. But please don't take my words out of context. But the separation of illegal alien families is the product of the same legal loopholes that Democrats refuse to close. And these laws are the same that have been on the books for over a decade. And the President is simply enforcing them.
2: Policy to take children away from their parents. Uh, can it's you imagine a moral the horrors that, that these children must be going through
3: the law. when they come across the border? They're with their parents, and then suddenly they're pulled away from their parents. Why is the government doing this? Because it's the law, and that's what the law states. Not, it and have to be the law, the you law guys don't have to do that. It's, it's, it's you're your right; policy. it doesn't have to be the law. In the- <laughs>
2: um, I have so many questions I wanted to get to, and I'm running out of time. But uh, just quickly, a couple of things we talked about on this show this year. Killing bin Laden. Yeah. You know, uh, I always said I'm okay with it because I'm not a Christian, so I'm okay with yeah. shooting my enemies in the face. Yeah. Um, but Jesus said, uh, turn the other cheek. Yeah. Love your enemies. Don't repay evil with evil. Mm-hmm. Do good to those that hate you. Whatever bad you do to others, you do to me. Do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Were you for killing bin Laden? Absolutely. And And yet I just read these quotes from your boy Jesus. How do you, how do you square that? How do you, make that square for me. Jesus, yeah. Jesus was talking about personal offenses. I'm not to return evil for evil to you, but in Romans chapter 13, uh, the New Testament, Romans 13 gives government the power of the sword, Paul said, to render uh, Uh, evil, yes. Paul's not Jesus though, is he? His his words are just as authoritative as the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all the New Testament. It's all God's word. Wait, wait, wait. But honestly, why does does Paul, Mm -hmm. why is his word equal to the man himself? Because it's in the same book. Oh. Uh, All right, come back, because I have 20 more (laughs) questions for you. I thank you you for doing this. I have time. Thank Thank you you. so much, Bill. All
0: right, give a hand to the pastor, Pastor Master Justice. I appreciate it. All right, let's meet our panel. For those who may be listening to this later, or uh, those who might not be familiar, that was uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, former uh, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and pastor of First Baptist Dallas, uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Now, while Sessions and Jeffress specifically cited Romans 13. In fairness, Sarah Sanders didn't specifically cite uh, Romans 13. Nevertheless, she said, it's very biblical to enforce the law, and one has to wonder, where would you go to support that view? And a lot of people would point to Romans 13. So, um, I don't really think you have to be a Bible scholar to recognize uh, the mistakes that they made in in these clips. You don't really have to be a professional minister to understand that justifying the enforcing of questionable laws, or in this case, family separation morally outrageous laws, um, is an abuse of the Bible. I don't think you have to be a historian to know that the Bible, and Romans 13 in particular, can be and have been used to justify some of the worst atrocities in human history. Uh, Everything from Nazism in Germany uh, to apartheid in South Africa, to chattel, chattel slavery in the Americas, was all justified by pointing to Romans chapter 13. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here. Here's a little bit of bearing my soul. If I were convinced personally that there was a passage in the Bible that justified human atrocities like these, like, like the Holocaust and like like transatlantic slave, slave trade, I would condemn the Bible. That's what I would do. I would say, well, the Bible's wrong. Thankfully, I don't have to do that this morning. The problems that we saw in these clips and the the way that this passage has been um, interpreted, that's the problem. The interpretation of this passage and its application are the problem. And let me just add this in case anyone hearing this uh, thinks I'm picking on conservatives, let me say with absolute clarity misinterpreting the Bible is not just a conservative problem, it is also a progressive problem. I have witnessed Uh, People across the entire political spectrum quote the Bible out of context and use it to support their policies, and it's wrong no matter who does it, so don't hear me as picking on conservatives. Uh, Hermeneutics is that big word that I sometimes use that means biblical interpretation, and hermeneutics really, really matters. People in authority citing proof texts of the Bible to attempt to justify unjust laws has very real, very dire consequences. So today we're going to look at this very famous passage, very often abused passage, and we're going to learn some good hermeneutics so we can interpret and apply this passage well. Does that sound good? All right. Before we dive into the text, I have a custom of praying for the Holy Spirit's illumination. And I also want to point out that I'll be reading not not starting in verse uh, in chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 9 of chapter 12 and read all the way to verse 10 of chapter 13. And the reason why I'm doing that is because those passages before and after Romans 13, 1 through 7 are the immediate literary context of our passage for this morning. And context matters. You know how in real estate the most important principle is location, location, location? In hermeneutics, the most important principle is context, 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 okay? So, oh, one more thing, not to belabor the point, but when we read the Bible in our modern translations, we are often accustomed to seeing chapter divisions and verse numbers, but we should all be aware that these chapter divisions and verse numbers were not in the original writings. You all know that, right? They were added over a thousand years later and at a different points. So the first recipients of the letter to the Romans uh, did not know what Romans 13 was. They just knew that Paul was talking about things in a flow of thought. So let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, we need your help to interpret and to apply the scriptures well in our lives. You are the giver of wisdom. You shine your light of illumination on the scriptures and illuminate them to our hearts and to our minds We invite you here today. We invite you into this message. We invite you into this space. We invite you into our hearts, into our minds. Help us to see what you would want us to see. Give us uh, a new way of viewing this passage, Lord. We pray that you would uh, open up the scriptures to us, to our understanding this morning. And we pray that you would help us to live them out in a faithful way, a way that is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that's people said, amen. Amen. If you have a translation of the Bible, you're welcome to turn uh, in it to chapter 12 of Romans. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screens behind me. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 12, starting verse 9. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. And honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The word of the Lord. So, um, to me, it's astonishingly how different Romans 13, verses 1 through 7 reads when you read it in context. When you read the immediate and the preceding and and the following passages, it becomes glaringly obvious that Paul has sandwiched a passage about living at peace in the empire in between two passages on love. And yet, the way people quote Romans 13 out of context, you would be justified in thinking that the whole passage is about God ordaining every human injustice in human history. It never ceases to amaze me that when people cite Romans 13, they're never talking about verses 8 through 10. They're only talking about 1 through 7. Why is that? Because 8 through 10 are powerful. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Imagine a world in which every time a person cited Romans 13, they weren't trying to justify some draconian law or some, un, or some injustice, but they were instead reminding us that we should love our neighbors. <laughs> Imagine that world. Romans 13, oh yeah, loving our neighbors. This is one half of what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. The twofold greatest commandment is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that this sums up the entire teaching of the Bible. And Paul here in Romans 13 quotes Jesus and instead of thinking about Jesus, we think about the rulers and the authorities and submitting to their sword. This is an interpretation problem. Don't take my word for it. Let's ask St. Augustine, one of the most influential Christian thinkers in all of church history. Here's what he said Whoever then thinks that they understand the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as they ought. That's it. The hermeneutic The lens through which we are to read the scriptures is one of love. Sisters and brothers, Romans 13 does not justify harming our neighbors. It clearly teaches us to love our neighbors. That's what it teaches. And anyone who says otherwise has not interpreted it correctly. For starters, let's keep in mind another big piece of context. The one who wrote Romans 13. Let's think about Paul for a second. Who would consider Paul a law-abiding citizen? Many of you know most of what Paul wrote in the New Testament, he wrote from jail cells. <laughs> this, this is an obvious fact of his life, that wherever Paul went, he proclaimed a gospel that a crucified Judean man named Jesus was the true emperor of the entire world. And he got thrown in jail for it many times. He was almost killed for that message many times. The gospel that Paul preached was treasonous to the empire. At one point in Thessalonica, he was accused of disturbing the peace because he said, because they said of him that he was proclaiming a different king. So it's strange to me that this passage written by the Apostle Paul gets, gets thought of as a uh, law and order kind of passage from the man who didn't care much for law and order when it came to the gospel. In fact, throughout the Bible, righteous saints broke the laws of empires. They did it quite frequently and with gusto. Like, like for example, take the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. They deliberately disobey Pharaoh's command to murder babies in Exodus chapter 1. Take Daniel, for example, who was an official in an empire. And he breaks the law of the empire by not praying to the king, but instead praying to the God of Israel. Or take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who grandstand in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and say, We're not going to bow down before your golden idol. And they get thrown in the fiery furnace. Or take the apostles, for example, who are called before the the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. And they're told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they say, we must obey God rather than human beings. Paul is not contradicting all of these saints. And Paul is not contradicting his own life and ministry. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But there are times when in Paul's ministry, being faithful to Jesus meant disturbing the peace of Rome. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's an amen place. (laughs) Sometimes being a good citizen of the kingdom of God will make you a bad citizen of Rome or the United States. We must never forget that Romans 13 was written by a man who was ultimately beheaded by the emperor of Rome in Rome. <laughs> so it never ceases to make me chuckle when people think of Romans 13 as this, like, obey the empire type of passage. Now, if we're confused by what Paul is saying here, it may be because we don't have another piece of crucial context. And that's precisely why I think reading Romans backwards is so important. Because I meant it when I said that every passage in Romans should be read in light of the conflict between the weak and the strong in the factions of the church in Rome, okay? Romans 13 is not an exception to that. Paul isn't suddenly interrupting his appeal to these house churches for unity with this abstract theology about church and state. He's not doing that. Instead, he is still talking to the weak and the strong. But instead of addressing one of those two big three markers of Jewish identity, which are, what are the big three markers of Jewish identity? Circumcision, keeping kosher, and keeping Sabbath. In chapters 14 and 15, which we talked about for the last two weeks, the two big ones that Paul was addressing were keeping Sabbath and keeping kosher. In this passage, The big identity marker that that Paul is addressing for Jewish disciples was zeal. Zeal was, for some Jewish disciples of the so-called weak faction, a huge temptation and a very real source of potential division in the body of Christ. For mostly Jewish disciples who were Torah observant, in the weak faction, they were tempted to hear the gospel as a call to faithful resistance against the empire, possibly even to the point of violence. And why is that? Because in very recent Jewish history, there had been a famous example of this. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Zealous Jews resisted the empire of their day to the point of violence, and and they succeeded. For a short period of time, about six or seven years, the Jewish people were free. They were liberated. They threw off their pagan oppressors, and they had their own government. So this was in the consciousness of the Jewish disciples in Rome. And Paul understands this impulse. Paul himself says of of himself that I was far more zealous than my contemporaries and that his zeal had led him to violently persecute the followers of the Jesus way. Paul is talking to his fellow Jews, who are passionate and and have zeal. Scott McKnight, in his book, Reading Romans Backwards, concedes that it's very unlikely that the Jewish disciples in Rome are going to violently rise up against Rome. There there may have only been about a hundred of them. But something that they were very likely tempted to do was to not pay their taxes. So here's what McKnight says. Telling the group in Rome not to resist, to submit, to respect authority, and to pay taxes sounds too much like a response to planned resistance, if not a temptation to rebellion and revolution. I suggest then that Romans 1 through seven, emerges from the weak Returning to Rome to find themselves not only displaced, but also with the added problem of increased taxation. In other words, it is is less likely that the weak were were turning to physical violence or armed rebellion than resisting taxes. So here we can see that the unity of the body of Christ is still Paul's primary concern, even in this passage which is often thought of to be about governments and states and the relationship between church and state. Rather than the house churches being divided over food customs, like they were in 14 and 15, in 13, they're divided over the identity markers of their political allegiances. Now we can begin to see how this passage fits into the broader context. And now we can begin to piece together an application for our own lives today. Paul's passion for the unity of the body of Christ wasn't born out of an anxious conflict avoidance. Paul was passionate about the unity of the body of Christ because it's the public witness of the truth of the gospel. And he also saw that the weak in Rome had a legitimate desire to honor God with their zeal. But you and I both know this, that you can have zeal without wisdom, right? You need zeal and wisdom. Here, Paul is calling upon the weak to exercise their zeal within the context of wisdom. And that is why I think that Paul prefaces his comments about submitting to the empire with a passage about the transformation of zeal Into love, honor, and hospitality. Well, I think I think what Paul is doing here in this passage is pointing us back to the centrality of Christ's love to unify us as one new family in Christ. Listen to these words again. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. How? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Today in the United States, we live in a highly divisive time. And the body of Christ, if you hadn't noticed, is fractured. Paul's transformation of zeal into love, honor, and hospitality, it challenges you and me. It challenges us right here where we live today. Our primary identities should be derived from our participation in Christ, but we are often tempted to derive our identities from our political parties, or from our political positions, or our political opinions. so what Paul is doing here is reminding us to come back to the practical ways that we love one another in community. Imagine if the church in America wasn't known as a voting block. Imagine if the church in America was rather known as a place where you could be loved and known personally before you're subjected to a political litmus test. Wouldn't that be amazing? But many churches are Step foot inside a church and it's, what is your opinion about X? What is your opinion about Y? Oh, you have a different opinion? You should see a different church. I'm not naive enough to believe that those of us who call this church home are going to ever agree 100% on politics. And quite the opposite, I don't want you to. I, I prefer that we have a diversity of opinions. But this passage isn't about Creating uniformity of political opinions. It's about creating community. The type of community that Paul is passionate about is one where the love of Christ is formed in the midst of diversity. That's what he's passionate about. How awesome would it be if the body of Christ refused to get swept up into divisive political partisanship? Wouldn't that be awesome? How awesome would it be if our zeal was transformed into practical ways that we love one another? I believe that if we are faithfully applying Paul's wisdom here, that the church would have a powerful witness in the United States in, today, in today's world. But I also think that we should be careful to avoid the mistake of not thinking that this has anything to do with politics. This does have something to do with politics. The greatest commandment, loving our neighbors as ourselves, should help us think about how we analyze our political views in America. Paul and the Roman disciples didn't live in a representative democracy. They didn't get a say in their government and they, didn't, they weren't able to elect lawmakers who represented their values. We do. And so I think that we have to be a little bit creative when we apply this passage. When we submit to our governing authorities, part of that governing authority are people that we elected, policies that we approved of or don't approve of. So here's an example that I came across this week that got me thinking about this. The current administration has proposed dropping the number of refugees admitted into the United States down to 18,000 next year. And we are at a point in world history when there's an unprecedented amount of refugees around the world. There are close to 26 million refugees in the world today. So that 18,000 number is 0. .0007% of the world's refugees. Matthew Sorens is the director of church mobilization for World Relief, and this is what he said on, on Twitter. He said, to be clear, no one has ever contemplated the United States welcoming all of the world's refugees. Presidents George W. Bush and Obama set ceilings that allowed us to take roughly one half of one percent of the global refugee population, between 70,000 and 110,000. But that was four or five times more than what we will take next year. He also wrote this, Refugees who cannot go home simply have no safe place to go. In a world that is as connected as our world is today, we have neighbors around the globe and we have international neighbors next door. As we attempt to apply the wisdom of this passage, I think that we should evaluate whether or not love of neighbor is being reflected in the policies we support. We should be disgusted when babies are taken away from their mothers and their fathers in our name. And we should be upset when politicians are citing Romans 13 to do so. And we should be practicing hospitality for those who are fleeing war zones or disasters. The next time we think about Romans 13, here are the three questions I want us to contemplate. I want us to think about how are we pressing into Our shared identity in Christ, over and against any partisan political identities that could divide us? Number two, how is our zeal being transformed into love, honor, and hospitality? And number three, how is the love of our neighbors being reflected in the policies for which we advocate? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you uh, in need of your wisdom. Our leaders are in need of your wisdom. Our country is in need of your wisdom. And your church is in need of your wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would learn how to wisely and properly apply and interpret your word here in Romans 13. I pray that we would hear your voice through the voice of Paul, urging the church to be united in one diverse body, to be a witness to the beauty and the power of the gospel. And I pray that we would hear your voice in this passage to call upon our leaders to reflect your wisdom in their policies. The love of neighbor, May your church be a church that not only welcomes strangers personally, but that advocates for our leaders to welcome those uh, who are fleeing from war zones and disasters around the world. I pray that we would be wise stewards of uh, the political power that we wield. And I pray that your church would be united in one voice that we cannot allow the scriptures to be used to justify injustice. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.